0: Politics and science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization. Okay, we'll cut that off and tell you that the following show does present the viewpoints of its participants. The following program represents the views of its participants.
1: That's
0: just what I was saying and does not necessarily represent an official opinion of WMRW or any other person or organization. And you are listening to WMRW and Politics and Science with your host, John Barkhausen. And my guest today is Dr. Raymond Pete. and I'm happy to have him back again. And uh, Dr. Pete, can you hear me? Yes. Excellent. Well, we're going to talk about uh, your recent newsletter. It was entitled, How Do You Know? Students, Patients, and Discovery. And the scope of the newsletter, I thought, was pretty enormous. It it ranges from discussing a unifying, self-ordering principle concerning the nature of the universe, which you can't get much bigger than that, and talks about how the same principle is reflected in our learning processes, in our culture, and in all other functional goal-directed systems in our world. Um... You use the quote uh, "One thought fills immensity" by uh, William Blake, the motto of the uh, newsletter, and uh, I thought uh, that's very apt for this newsletter because it's such a profound subject you're bringing up. I thought just as a way to bring people into this, um, it would be useful if you could tell us some of your personal experience as a as a student and then as a teacher, and how this has formed your outlook toward the world. Um.
1: My parents uh, had quite a few interesting books. Uh, they had got some from their parents' 19th century books, like I think it was a second or third edition of, of Darwin's Descent of Man, and they had a, a little collection of the little blue books. Uh, that were published, I think, in Kansas, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, uh, they were the classics in five- and ten-cent versions, and uh, so there really was quite a variety of reading material when I was a little kid, and in encyclopedias, the older Encyclopedia Britannica and others uh, were pretty objective at that time uh, on issues like Darwin versus Lamarck, and uh, gave the research done in the 20s uh, early part of the 19th of the 20th century uh, in different countries that gave me an orientation that uh, i began preferring the uh, the non-genetic uh, version of, of the um, adaptation of individuals to the environment uh, and so by the late 1940s when uh, the genetics doctrine was being imposed politically, very powerfully, through the U.S., uh, that made me start seeing the political significance of of science in general and especially biology.
0: Can you give us some sense of time? What year were you reading the little blue books? And oh, um...
1: Right after I learned to read Aliyub and such, uh, (laughs) I went right to the Little little Blue Books, uh, probably 1940. Okay. And then, uh, all through the 40s, uh, my parents uh, knew about uh, Peter Kropotkin's uh, political writings as well as his uh, mutual aid, Mm. Factor of Evolution. And so that was my uh, first (laughs) political book, was really Kropotkin's uh, biological work on evolution. And from that, he uh, drew his anarchist political ideas. And uh, that fit in with the other stuff I had been reading on uh, the true Darwin, not the... Uh, (coughs) pseudo-Darwinism that was promoted uh, after the the, the, um, 1940s.
0: Uh,
1: (coughs) Neo-Darwinism really was um, pretty much anti-Darwin, and in in Darwin's introduction to the descent of man, he uh, pointed out that his ideas were being distorted and that he didn't say that uh, uh, the uh, struggle for survival and natural selection was the uh, basic power of evolution. He named several other more Lamarckian uh, factors in evolution.
0: That's uh, more in line with uh, with what uh, Kropotkin was saying.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, Kropotkin emphasized cooperation within species and even between species in uh, Uh, symbiosis and such although I was interested in science before I went to college um, uh, even by the time I was in college I was convinced that uh, there was really something wrong with American and British science in particular and so I concentrated on the humanities and uh, did my master thesis on William Plague and uh, that gave me a chance to, uh, spend years, uh, reading on history of philosophy and philosophy of science and so on. Uh, so when I, years later, finally did go back to, uh, to a degree in science, I uh, had, uh, sort of inoculated myself against uh, being indoctrinated and forced to believe the, uh, very dogmatic ideas that make up American science,
0: what gave you the clue that it was dogmatic and not uh, based in in actuality
1: oh um you hear the the joke about uh, Aristotle uh, having counted the number of teeth in a donkey or something and that being uh, repeated for hundreds of years uh. The same thing happened in American uh, chromosome study. Uh, even though uh, Germans were able to count and uh, investigate the effect of chromosome, uh, way back early, in the early 20th century, uh, they were uh, thinking of chromosomes as the carriers of heredity and uh, disturbances in chromosomes as being the cause cancer, and so on. Uh, major American biologists didn't even believe that chromosomes had to do with heredity until the early 1920s. Hmm. And uh, in the 1940s, well, all the way up until 1956, American and English were still saying that humans have 48 chromosomes. And I had read enough in the 40s uh, to know that uh, people vary somewhat in their numbers, but the, by far the most common number of chromosomes was 46 in normal human, And uh, somehow, as this fixed idea, once one said it, with great authority, so Americans and British just kept saying it over and over for decades.
0: Mm. Did you have some good teachers yourself personally, uh, going through the school system?
1: Oh yeah, I had uh, three good teachers, I think, in the nineteen years in college, university. Mm-hmm. Out of about sixty, I guess. <laughs> I,
0: I don't think that's a bad average, as, as from my own personal experience. Yeah, you probably did pretty well there. Um, you've been teaching. I'd say, uh, and you're still teaching at this point, uh, you put out a newsletter, um, and I should have said that, uh, Ray Pete is a, uh, physiologist and a science historian and also, I think also going with that is the, uh, a philosophy historian. You write in this newsletter, how do you know about teaching literature? And I was wondering if you could just recount your experience, uh, Trying to follow the school regulations and then finally giving up on that.
1: Yeah, uh, that that year I was teaching uh, two different kinds of composition uh, in the freshman composition. The department had a little uh, list of uh, how we had to grade the paper: three uh, type of uh, grammatical for spelling mistakes or diction. Uh, you would mark off so many points and. The purpose is to fail about 90% of the freshmen, and that was called keeping up standards. And I saw that after doing that for a few weeks, that the students were writing worse and worse because they saw that uh, they uh, tended to make mistakes when they uh, didn't have everything for very constant control. So they, they started writing like first graders.
0: Hmm.
1: And uh, I had to read uh, several dozen of their papers. And uh, to save myself the, the, the suffering of reading first grade papers, I told them that I would from then on ignore the spelling, punctuation, and... and uh, the, the things on that list, but I would grade them entirely on their ability to communicate something of interest to me. Hmm. And uh, within just a couple of weeks, uh, everyone was writing much better. And uh, I had my office partner uh, who was teaching similar classes following the same rules. I had some read some of the before and after papers and grade them. And he found that when I wasn't grading for errors, uh, the students were writing better according to his and the department standards. So they were uh, supposedly keeping up standards while actually degrading the work output of the students.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a dysfunctional uh system, and, and I'm glad you were able to find a, a solution to that. Uh, Ray, we just got an email, and I think it's true, that's saying that the, uh, your, the vo- your voice is being clipped all the time. Um, so I think we should probably hang up, and I'll try to reconnect with you and get a better connection. Okay. So I'll call you right back in about a minute. Okay. Okay, sorry about that. So we are going to go to, uh, a song for just a second and I'm going to call Ray back. Alright, we're back, uh, it's Politics and Science with Dr. Raymond Pete. We were talking about, uh, your teaching experience and uh, how you actually let the students write about things that were important to them, and suddenly their performance improved even on the even on the grammatical uh, criteria that the college was so worried about. Is that right?
1: Yeah, um, and when I asked them to put their emphasis on communicating something and, and to not think about the mechanics of it, suddenly the mechanics improved as well as the content.
0: And you uh did you know about Carl Rogers at that point, or is that somebody you read about later? Were you influenced by him?
1: Um, for a while, I was majoring in psychology in the nineteen fifties, and uh, I read his uh, client centered therapy uh, sometime in the late fifties.
0: What was his influence on education, Carl Rogers?
1: Um, he he went from. His work showing that it's the um, uh, coherent personality of the therapist that makes a difference in uh, therapy situations and not any uh, psychiatric uh, technique that they might apply. It's simply the, the validity of uh, their communication with the client. Uh, he established that that was actually the... The thing that made uh, uh, psychological therapy work and then he, he extended that and uh, began popularizing the idea of student-centered uh, education.
0: So that it was actually the psychiatrist or therapist uh, allowing the person to self-direct their own recovery, emotional recovery, that was working. Um,
1: yeah, it was the uh, the process of listening deeply uh, that the um, patient, in effect, began hearing what they were saying themselves by having someone uh, understand what they were saying.
0: And he also applied the, his same the same uh, idea to it seemed like, to the entire world. He talked about it in terms of culture?
1: Um, yeah, he he published a book on the philosophy of science uh, with a co-author whose name I forget. Oh, uh, But it's uh, probably a good introduction to uh, Carl Rogers' work to start at the philosophy of science. Uh, but at, at the end of his book, Client-Centered Therapy, there's a philosophical that makes very explicit uh, the, um, the philosophy behind the method.
0: And how was he received?
1: Oh, uh, well, uh, even uh, other psychiatrists, uh, since he, he showed empirically that uh, people recovered in proportion to the uh, coherence of the therapist's personality and manner of communication, and that it had nothing to do with uh, whether they were a Freudian or a behaviorist or uh, uh, whatever. Uh, And so um, all of the doctrinaire psychologists said that isn't possible because they really believe in their theories of therapy, and especially the medical uh, psychiatrists just totally said he isn't, uh, he, he isn't. Even a psychologist, and much less a, a psychiatrist, uh, the, the medical people were the the most rejecting of his approach.
0: Considering what he was saying, that's not too surprising because it it sounds like it was it was threatening to them.
1: Uh, yeah, and and professors in general uh, didn't like that approach because. Uh, the the point of being a professor is uh, to demonstrate that you know it all. If if a, a person goes into uh, say a physics class, uh, the, the the assumption is that the professor is going to sort of transmit bit by bit his textbook in physics into the mind of the student, so that it's an absolute uh, filling up of an empty space in the mind of the student, and uh, hmm. as if the professor knows everything for sure and absolutely. And back at that time when, when I was uh, teaching English and literature and uh, studying a, a variety of things, I talked to uh, quite a variety of physics people, because that was one of my interests, how physics underlies biology, which underlies uh, the, the the way we make language and, and how consciousness works. So, uh, as part of my understanding of language and consciousness, I felt I had to uh, have satisfaction that there was some rational physics behind it. So, I talked to a lot of uh, physics professionals, and invariably they would just, when I would ask them a question, they would quote verb word for word right out of their uh, textbook or physics course, and uh, they simply couldn't conceive what I was asking if it was. Uh, and attempt to know anything other than what is in the physics book. Uh, really, the most dogmatic uh, people in science seem to be in physics. One of my uh, professors that I thought was intelligent uh, said that the average uh, physics graduate student uh, has trouble knowing whether a ball will roll up or down an inclined plane because they've been trained so abstractly.
0: That's a little discouraging.
1: Um, yeah, the, um, the physicists who tend towards the uh, mathematical side, uh, dislike applied mathematics. And, uh, I've, I've talked to some of those, uh, one of the local professors, who was very famous, uh, explained some physical reactions, particle uh, uh, nuclear, uh, particle interactions, as being explainable by a, a particle coming from the future uh, and meeting the nucleus at the moment that the nucleus emits a particle. Uh, Just a most fundamentally confused person who uh, thought time could run both ways at the same time.
0: Mm. Well, it's perhaps the influence of quantum physics on the scientific culture.
1: Um, Yeah, it's the abstract way everything is taught. Um, Even getting someone to to look at the history of where the idea of quantum uh, thinking came from um, as as a historical and cultural thing. It, uh, there have been a couple of uh, books treating uh, the German physics community at that time and uh, showing how important idealistic philosophy was In their cultural context. And when you look at the, uh, for example, Einstein's photoelectric uh, theory, um, at that time, at the time that Einstein thought of um, the necessity to quantize light to explain uh, the way a certain frequency of light rather than intensity is needed. To uh, liberate electrons. At the time he thought that, he was absolutely and simply mistaken about the electronic nature of matter. Uh, Twenty or thirty years later, he learned otherwise, but at that time he subscribed to the idea that uh, matter is uh, an assemblage of atomic. Particles, each one of which is electrically discrete and that there is no electrical blurring across uh, the substance. Mm. Uh, when Michael Polanyi in 1915, coming from Hungary, uh, presented in Berlin uh, a description of his work in absorption of gases onto solid surfaces, Uh, under pressure Uh, Einstein was one of the people at the meeting that said uh, sorry, that isn't possible Uh, you're thinking uh, in some kind of primitive Hungarian way but here in Germany we know that uh, electrons are discreetly attached to uh, atoms and you don't get these things smearing out through space
0: Mm. Uh,
1: and it was that kind of thinking that, that was background to the quantized uh, physics that took over the world. But uh, Einstein, who was very instrumental in it, uh, was simply mistaken about how matter worked.
0: I see. So even great minds can can go astray. And did he try to call it back when he realized uh, his oh, his error? Uh,
1: yeah. Um, it, it was about 1930 or so when uh, the adsorption people uh, they, they never admitted that Polanyi was right uh, but they started uh, creating alternative ways to explain the um, experimental evidence that he had demonstrated so uh, Polanyi's evidence was vindicated but they told a different a story about how it worked, and from about that time on, Einstein uh, began saying uh, he couldn't uh, really accept the the whole quantum approach of to of physical reality.
0: I see, and we're talking about uh, to Dr. Raymond Peet, who's a ph- physiologist uh, and Eugene Oregon and a science historian, and it's it sounds like that's an example of how a dogma uh gets legs of its own and and walks off from even the people who originated the ideas and we're also talking about learning and how it works best if it's self-organizing uh and Carl Rogers uh, was postulating that that's a, an essential trait of of everything in nature that uh, things tend to be self-organizing and they tend to uh try to live up to their uh fullest potential uh,
1: well it it's in the biological uh idea of what a cell and an organism is uh where uh, you see the, the greatest uh the the clearest demonstration of of uh, that principle uh in sociology and therapy and so on uh people think uh, those aren't really very scientific anyway and in physics uh, the dogma is so strong that they don't there's no possibility really to talk sensibly to the believers but in biology uh, there has been such a huge amount of of uh, data accumulated uh, showing that uh, things are open and flexible, and that um, trying to explain them in terms of uh, uh, these uh, quantized eternal parts uh, just doesn't work, but that's that's where molecular biology and uh, the dominant theory of genetics came from, uh, a belief in an otherworldly nature of the gene that uh, what they were doing was uh, agreeing with the, uh, the theological uh, rejection of evolution, and uh, Mendel was was a monk who gained his own uh, professional uh, standing by seeming to have disproved evolution by showing showing that. Traits are eternal, even though the organisms seem to change. He showed that they're only changing their appearance, but their essential nature is timeless. Uh, So the church people liked Mendel's work. But then English biologists found it and uh, took it up again for the same reason, that they hated uh, some of the things that Darwin said, which agreed with Lamarck, which was that, organisms can be changed by their experience. And that has racial overtones. If you say the working class people uh, can radically uh, change their nature and become philosophers, uh, that uh, messes with the whole authoritarian social system. And so uh, the English ruling class biologist uh, loved the, the Mendelian approach because it said Darwin and Lamarck were both profoundly mistaken about how evolution worked
0: hmm. that's fascinating so really genetics just grew out of a a way to, uh, they found a way scientists found a way to to appease the church who was didn't like the idea of evolution but Genes represented something eternal that God could create.
1: Uh, yeah, one of the things in the 50s that uh, made me think American biology was ridiculous was that uh, they believed that genes would specify everything, including the way we thought and uh, the, the way each synapse, every nerve cell was supposed to be genetically determined as to location and the way it uh, synapses with other nerves. And uh, someone calculated how impossible, when they realized how many brain cells there were, uh, people started rethinking that and uh, said it wouldn't be possible to have enough genes in a cell to uh, to specify how it works. And uh, as... As the uh, genetics uh, people learned more about DNA, it turned out that uh, the great bulk of the DNA isn't there for genetic purposes. Uh, The genes that make up a person or a yeast uh, are a very small part of the DNA that's present. Uh, Our DNA isn't very different from that of a, a monkey or a yeast cell. Uh, but something is very different in our reality,
0: so it sounds like it's not just a prejudice among educators and other uh, therapists against the self ordering idea but that it goes across all the professional trades
1: um, yeah uh, I happen to be teaching a linguistics course uh, in the sixties and uh, just about the time that noam chomsky was uh, coming out against the Vietnam War, uh, I had been uh, pointing out how there was absolutely no evidence in Chomsky's type of linguistics. He totally ignored evidence. Uh, It was an absolutely idealistic doctrine saying that we have genes that specified the the way we talk. And there's almost no difference in Chomsky's idealistic uh, genetic idea of language and Conrad Lorenz's uh, genetic explanation for all behavior, which Conrad Lorenz uh, designed specifically for Hitler to uh, justify racial extermination Mm. Uh, and uh, Chomsky wouldn't like that comparison but uh, in fact they're both committed to uh, ignoring the actual evidence and uh, believing that uh, genes explain everything I'm not sure where Chomsky's motive came from but uh, Lorenz's was obviously to say that uh, society is constituted the way it should be except for the uh, the mongrels with the uh, bad genetic traits such as liking jazz music and uh, uh, <laughs> things that were culturally unpopular and should be exterminated.
0: Yeah, I must admit I'm a little confused because I hear... Um the dogmatists saying that uh, you know everything's laid out and, and determined by genes, and yet they also, which which seems like something that's completely set in stone, and yet they're also proposing you know things like chaos theory.
1: Yeah, that that was um the, the um idea of randomness goes way back into the nineteenth century. Um, it was uh, sort of a compromise. They said that if anything changes, it changes only randomly and so uh, w- when uh, Muller started showing that he could mutate fruit flies with x-rays um, the the change was seen to deteriorate uh, almost always the any mutation made the animals defective. And uh, that was because change is random. And so if you're going to have change, it can't be meaningful. Uh, you can't say that if you feed poor people that they will have healthier babies who will be more intelligent uh, because uh, that would say that you have a directional change uh, being caused by the environment but the whole point of genetics is to say environment can't change uh, the reality of the organism and if you change it it's only going to make it worse so uh, don't bother trying to improve uh, the traits of a population
0: I see, so it really is political um not only a theological response, but a, a political response. That, uh,
1: yeah, I think the, the doctrine of randomness uh, led into this uh, loving of chaos theory. Mm.
0: Um, you've said that Neo-Kantian philosophy has dominated U.S. universities for more than a century, uh, and it, it argues that our senses are, are limited, so we can't really know the world. Uh, that, does that tie into that?
1: Um, yeah, our our senses are determined by our genes, and uh, even for the Chomsky point of view, and uh, a lot of the biologists, uh, even our thoughts and behaviors uh, are uh, determined by our genes.
0: You were talking about Chomsky, and he's famous for uh, theorizing about languages. Uh, how, how do languages... Fit into how we learn.
1: Chomsky uh, says that we we really don't learn our language in the structural sense that it, it, we're born with it. All we do is learn uh, some of the minor details of vocabulary and pronunciation and such from our culture. Uh, uh, the uh, neo-Kantians. Uh, at the extreme uh, say that our perceptions are uh, shaped by our genes, and uh, many of them uh, revive the Leibnizian idea of monads, that uh, all of our knowledge and experience is uh, in our genes, and so we aren't really experiencing anything. Uh, and uh, uh, George Wald uh, who was a famous uh, professor who investigated vision and uh, uh, he um, explained that color vision is, is based on the difference of frequencies rather than an absolute color and uh, he I uh, testing people who had had their uh, lens removed from their eyes because of cataract, he found that they could see uh, patterns in ultraviolet light the same way bees can. Hmm. And that's one of the famous favorite examples of the Neocontians, that uh, we are determined to see the world in a certain way. For example, bees see a pattern in flowers, um Reflecting ultraviolet light that humans don't see, but uh, when the the thick lens is removed from the eye, uh, the the ultraviolet light gets to our retina, and humans can see it. So, it's it's just a matter of of uh, the intensity of stimulus and such that makes the difference between what a bee sees and what a human sees. Hmm. And uh, very similar things apply to the uh, how we think about the senses, Um, uh, some people say that bees and and birds and other animals each has its uh, genetically programmed way of thinking about what it experiences, and so we can never really know uh, what a bee or an ant is thinking uh, because they are only following genetic rules. Uh, But people who really are willing to look at the animals in their natural uh, setting, uh, and uh, in other words, who are uh, studying them in in an intelligent way, see that the the bees and ants are solving problems, unique original problems that never happened before in uh, a manner that, rivals human thinking. Uh, for example, uh, given a, a setup of uh, instructions and uh, uh, arrangements in space, ants were able to learn and transmit information as competently as trained air traffic controllers uh, in, in discreetly defined informational situations. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, there are lots of demonstrations that uh, show that animal thinking uh, isn't genetically determined and unconscious, but uh, behaves uh, almost identically to the way human thinking works. Uh, perceiving the situation, analyzing it, and communicating it.
0: I've never understood why we separated ourselves from the animals to begin with, because it just seems like another form of elitism. It's it's obvious that, obvious that we're, you know, very related to all the other beings on this earth, especially mammals, and uh, it seemed like some insecure elitism that drove us to put us on a pedestal.
1: Um. Yeah. Uh, there. Uh, just a few decades ago, some of the most famous uh, professors in the country were saying that uh, uh, there are subhumans and and real humans, and that working-class people are genetically inferior, and that uh, with with a, an improved society, uh, there won't be any exceptions to the uh, Uh, stratification so that working class people will all go to the bottom uh, genetically, uh, and that the uh, talented people will all rise to the top, uh, that uh, people will never change uh, status once the society sorts things out, so that uh, poor people will never try to get a college education.
0: Hmm. So it's it's kind of like the old uh, European world attitude where people kind of uh, are relegated into their careers at a very young age uh by how they test in uh, schools.
1: Uh, yeah, I wasn't the bell curve um co-authored by Herrnstein and Murray. Uh, Herrnstein a- was a famous Harvard professor who uh said that uh, we Needed a proper meritocracy where uh, there there wasn't the confusion of trying to educate working class people,
0: yeah, well, it sounds like the uh the same system that you were teaching in where they wanted to eliminate a certain number of the students from the student body by the time the course was done, so it's more of a filter than an education device. Ray, I, I was wondering if you could address uh, some of the other aspects of the article you recently wrote, the newsletter, How Do You Know Students, patience and Discovery. Uh, you talked about um, Alfred Korz- Korzybski, I believe, and also uh, Paolo Freire, both pointing out the, uh, the use of language and the use of abstractions in education and how that's a help and a hindrance. Um.
1: Yeah, Paulo Freire um, was um, a person who had an empirical view of reality, and that uh, when people realized that they could define the words of their language,
0: uh,
1: it caused them to uh, start thinking rather than simply accepting what uh, the their betters wanted to impose on them and uh so he asked people to uh choose a vocabulary that they wanted to uh, investigate and to define the terms themselves and uh then to test their definitions and uh a true uh, empirical approach to reality and uh Korzybsky pretty much got stuck in. Uh, the idea that uh, there were gradients of concreteness and generality, and that truth involved uh, getting down to the specific concrete fact, and uh, he he was uh, basically an enemy of of the idea that. Uh, there could be a critical approach on the general level, and that general uh, perceptions and concepts were ultimately uh, just as valid as concrete naming of individual situations. Uh, he wanted uh, the um, the proper scientific language, he wanted it to have uh, coefficients or diacritical marks indicating uh, the particular individual and the particular time you're referring to Hmm. uh, and implying that generalities were always uh, farther from reality. But if you realize that all of the facts are, uh, whether you're talking about an atom here and now uh, an organism or, uh, a process. Uh, we're talking about patterns of experience. And, uh, if, if a person doesn't look for a pattern on the scale of generality, naturally they're not going to find it. And it's the same thing as, as assuming that everything an ant does is stupid. Uh, people like the famous Uh, uh, E.O. Wilson I think his name is uh, who has written famous books on ants basically believes ants are stupid but uh, it's (laughs) simply because he investigated them in stupid ways that failed to look at their unique response to unique circumstances Um, And so if, if a person doesn't look for a general phenomenon Naturally, you're not going to find it. But if you look uh, with skill for general behavior, then you're going to see things that are uh, maybe of of the maximum importance. Uh, For example, uh, when people are studying cancer, uh, the genetic people uh, don't look for field phenomena, and so they can't see them. But uh, whenever someone looks for such a thing as a cancer field, they see that it's there. For example, the uh, uh, definitive cancer cells are surrounded by a field of precancerous cells, and it fades off into simply inflamed or stressed cells. Mm. Uh, and without seeing the field phenomenon in in any process, uh, you're going to get stuck with a reductionist uh, jumble of the meaningless particles. Uh, And the government has some uh, amazing giant computers that they uh, stuff with the observations of uh, what enzymes and genes and uh, uh, signal substances are doing. And Think that they'll come up with something, but uh, they're failing to simply look intelligently at the field behavior or the, the way the thing is functioning as a whole through time and space. And uh, that's sort of the difference between uh, the the way von Bertalanffy looked at systems theory and uh, the way P.K. Anokan uh, derived his. Uh, a more cybernetic kind of approach to systems thinking.
0: You said so Anokan came up with the theor- the uh, concept of feedback, something we all use today.
1: Um, yeah, it came in English. It became uh, popularized by uh, Norbert Wiener, uh, but uh, all of the concepts were developed about 15 years before that by. T.K. Anokan, who was one of uh, Pavlov's uh, colleagues, Anokan saw that it was uh, th- what was able to explain the development of an embryo meaningfully instead of the embryo being guided blindly by genetic reactions. Uh, each of the cells and systems was responding to the situation it found itself in at any moment, and uh, adjusting itself, changing its metabolism, and uh, uh, restructuring itself every time the situation changed, the particles changed to suit the situation, uh, where the, the genetic theory has this infinitely complex idea that all of these uh, constantly changing developmental processes have to be spelled out in the beam somehow and, and somehow read at the proper time. It, it just is impossible when you try to uh, guide it like clockwork from the inside. But when it's a matter of responsiveness to the presently perceived situation, it'll explain how an embryo develops. And, uh, and Okun has uh, then applied it for for many years to all of the uh, aspects of uh, learning, brain development, uh, and uh, physiology in general.
0: Hmm. Um, we're running out of time, so we should probably sum up. But um, I was my interest was piqued by one thing you wrote, which was that Anokhin found principles that would would explain the origin of organs and their functions and it would also apply to the interactions between individuals. So he saw the micro and the macro principle yeah, of self-organizing. Um,
1: some of his books are available in English, and uh, one of the interesting things uh, about his understanding of brain function was that he argued that it's impossible to explain uh, the basic processes of hearing and seeing and learning in terms of an, an on-or-off, uh, all-or-none function of, of nerve communication. Uh, he said that uh, each nerve basically has an intelligent uh, awareness of what's happening, much more than just being a switch that goes on and off. He said that each nerve is receiving uh, complex signals from its extremity to its and adjusting uh, the way the developing organism does at other levels.
0: Hmm. So, everything is self-organizing from the whole right down to the the cells.
1: Uh, Yeah, and uh, one of my professors of biochemistry, Sidney Bernhard, I took reading and conference courses from him where I would uh, bring him a book by Albert Saint Georgie, for example, and and he would read it and say not scientific enough, and and then he would suggest I read something. And uh, he was a very bright but very skeptical person. But uh, he published a series of papers showing that uh, the all of the basic assumptions of Uh, biochemistry, which the idea is that you squash up a cell, float the enzymes in a a solution of water and salt, and that by diffusion, the um, uh, the particles will meet the enzyme and react and so on. He showed that in the glycolytical uh, metabolism in which uh, glucose enters and uh, uh, lactate or pyruvate or carbon dioxide comes out, mm-hmm. he showed that the enzymes outnumber the substrate molecules and the, the, the um, reaction involves one enzyme handing off the product of its reaction to the next enzyme so it isn't a random uh, diffusion of... Material through water, randomly finding an enzyme, but it's a, a totally organized enzyme to enzyme handoff of the material that they're working on. Huh. And That's he did that simply by counting molecules, which uh, anyone could have done, but they, they were so committed to the idea of randomness in an, a watery solution. Uh, that they totally missed the point of what's happening in the cell.
0: Uh, we have a number of questions that have come in by email. Uh, two of them are, are pretty similar. Uh, one is, what would you recommend to a young person who wants to study biology? Uh, he has a degree in English. And the other person was wondering what research uh, we can trust.
1: Oh, well, don't trust anything.
0: Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
1: just read it carefully and think about what they're doing and, and even think about who they are and what they're trying to to do. Uh, for example, I recently uh, saw uh, some uh, a discussion of the anti-cancer drug called Ukraine, and uh, some English uh, researchers offered to give it a an objective test, and the producer enthusiastically agreed. But then when he learned what they were going to do, he said, well, no, I want an independent evaluation. And they wrote articles in Lancet uh, saying he, the, the producer was unwilling to submit it to a, an objective test. But when I looked at their 200 or so previous publications, they were absolutely aligned with the... Um, cell-toxic chemotherapy industry, and they were going to test his uh, substance in violation of the uh, standard uh, research procedures for the European Union.
0: Hmm. Uh,
1: But uh, that got into the literature as the, uh, the producer of the substance being unwilling to have an objective test where they were the ones uh, trying to put it through a, a non-objective situation. Reading about the history of, of the person making the claim is part of the process of finding out what they're doing, and and just carefully looking at the nature of their work will, about nine times out of ten, show that they're uh, they have some ulterior motive. Yep. And about um, where to start, uh, probably Gilbert Ling... Is a, a good place to uh, reorient to how the, the biological community works and uh, how they have ignored laying for uh, almost sixty years now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the few uh, I've I've looked at the literature citing Lane and see that when someone misquoted, totally misstated what Ling said. His misquotation uh, went down through about a dozen repetitions in which people claiming to have read Ling were simply mis- uh, quoting a misstatement mm. about Gilbert Ling. So uh, that one uh, error led to... Uh, deliberate misrepresentations of, of Gilbert Lane's work. So when you really pay attention to Gilbert Lane, what you're doing is is seeing a lot of corruption in the biological uh, community.
0: We'll have to leave it there, Ray. Uh, we're out of time. Okay. And another person asked uh, if you put a book out with all of your dietary recommendations laid out in one place so people could gain a clearer understanding of what to eat and what not to eat. So.
1: Uh, no, not really. It's coming
0: out gradually in my newsletters. Okay, and I'll give that information out right now. We're out of time. Thanks so okay. much, Ray. If you have any questions for politics and science, you can direct them by email to politicsandscience at madriver.com. That's politics, A-N-D, science at madriver.com. Archive shows can be found at radio4all.net. That's radio, the number four, all.net. Politics and Science presents the viewpoints of its participants and does not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of any other person or organization.